This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. So as my guest today, I am unbelievably excited to have James Nestor, the author of the book Breath. And this is a book that every single person listening to this podcast is going to want to have on their shelf if they don't have it there already. So welcome to Body Talk, James Nestor. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. With Now, your previous book was on uh, free diving. And is that where your fascination with breath came from or did it start somewhere else? Well, it started for me maybe about 10 or 11 years ago when I had a pretty strange experience in a breathing class that my doctor couldn't explain, that no one else I knew in the medical fields could explain. But I just kind of shelved that away until I met free divers until I started researching with the book Deep, which just freediving is just one, one sliver of that book. There's a lot of other things going on, but it starts with freediving. And I saw the potential of where breathing could take us, how it could allow us to hold our breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time, which is supposed to be impossible, but people do it all the time. And so it intrigued me. And there were so many stories about breathing that wouldn't fit into that book because that book was about the human connection to the ocean. So I just kept filing them away until that file got big enough that I thought maybe there was a book in here. And then I set out and uh, this book was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It took me years and years and years of so much research. That was my next question. How long did it take to write? Yeah, <laughs> Too long. Way too long. <laughs> So it, you know, uh, and you hear this from authors all the time, but mm -hmm. it's, I thought I had a clear path into this subject, but the deeper I got into it, the more nothing was making sense. I would go to Stanford or another institution and ask someone a question. They give me a very clear authoritative answer. Then I would ask someone else at another renowned institution that same question and they would give me a completely different answer and tell me that the other guy was full of crap so mm -hmm. there was so much we don't know when breathing my father-in-law is a pulmonologist he's been a pulmonologist for 40 years he has no idea about the subtleties of breathing he's like that's not what we do we cut stuff out of lungs <laughs> we're dealing with, <laughs> with people who have who have serious injuries and he does yeah. an amazing job right. at that but didn't know anything. I, I said, well, what's healthy? Well, it's a healthy respiratory rate. Um, and, you know, so he knew those those metrics. But when it came down to the functions of breathing, pranayama, yeah, other the ways. Mechanics, the physical mechanics of breathing. I, At the hospital that I'm attached to, we do more lung transplants than any other hospital in the country. What amazes me is that there is no training in breathing before or after surgery. And it's like, why would you transplant lungs and not teach people how to breathe? Yeah, you can think about when you go in for a checkup with your doctor, and this is something that I mentioned in the book, you know, they'll check your blood pressure, thus if you're having headaches, if you're fatigued, but they never look at your breathing and they never offer any advice as to breathing, but how we breathe affects all those things. Yeah. And I, so- it was a big gap, you know, in our understanding. Mm -hmm. I, I had a, a recent patient and in that first visit, I realized that when they relaxed, they hyperventilated. Hmm. 
And, and that was the first thing we worked on because this had never been made apparent to this person. And uh, I always remember because they said, um, so you're telling me I failed at breathing? I'm like, no, because if you failed at breathing, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So what was the deep experience that you had? You mentioned you were in this breathing class and, and something rather inexplicable happened. Uh, yeah, you know, it wasn't like some mental hallucination, dream state. It was much more of a physiological, physical reaction. And I did this thing. I signed up for this class. My doctor actually suggested it because I had been suffering from chronic bouts of bronchitis and even mild pneumonia. Even though I was eating well, I was really fit, I was sleeping well, my breathing was, was terrible. So I went to this place called The Art of Living and uh, did this uh, introductory course over a weekend, which was okay. I didn't get too much out of it. It's kind of interesting, but it wasn't until several weeks, or I think it was actually a month and a half or a couple months after that class that I went to a follow-up session. And um, just from breathing in this very simple rhythmic way, I broke into the most crazy sweat I've ever had in my life. My, my hair was sopping wet. My t-shirt was sopping wet. And everyone in the class saw it and I felt great, but no one could mm -hmm. really explain what, what happened. Uh, no doctor could. And then I asked the instructor and she was saying something about prana energy. I was like, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't know anything about that at, at the time. So I just mm -hmm. moved on. Did you come to a satisfactorily satisfactory experience about what that sweating it out was as you were researching the book? What do you, what do you see that as being now that you're on the other side of that? Well, it's a, that's a good, a good question. I think I have a better understanding of what had triggered that. And, you know, when you're entering states of being completely alkaline, then being completely acidic and looking at Tumo breathers and looking at Wim Hof and other people who were able to heat themselves up in frigid conditions, um, increase the temperature in their fingertips by 17 degrees, you know, in, mm -hmm. in, in snow for, for hours at a time. And they use very similar breathing technique to do that. But on a deeper level, if you're talking on a, on a molecular level, even an atomic level, mm -hmm. I love talking on that level. It's still hard for the Western mind to get real context into what is happening in these states. And what I mean by that is some Tumo monks can enter into a state in which they can superheat their bodies, uh, so much so that you can place them in a cold room, put a wet sheet over their backs, and they will dry it. But their metabolism, their metabolic rate is decreasing while they're doing this. Which so doesn't make monks, sense. It doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. you know, we increase heat with consumption of oxygen, right? We're burning energy, so that's going to increase heat but they are decreasing their consumption of oxygen and increasing heat. And still no one knows how, they're, how they do it. We know they can do it. There's, there's tons of studies on this, but no one knows how. And when I ask researchers, they scratch their head and say, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, so. <laughs> we'll put that in the idiopathic file. Yeah. Um, so so that, that actually leads me to to like two tracks here. So one of the things that struck me in your book was the, what you, what you refer to is carbon dioxide offloading. 
and the importance of CO2. I got a real sort of yin yang feeling about the two, you know, like what we learn in grade school, you know, you, you breathe, you know, the trees take the carbon dioxide to make oxygen and we breathe it in and there's this exchange of gases, but it's, it's a little more complex than that, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. And you know, CO2 is still considered a waste product, something you always need to get rid of. Like you don't want it in your body, which is such a twisted way of thinking about it because without CO2, oxygen can't do its thing. That's how oxygen goes to areas where there is an increase of CO2. That's why if I'm working out my arm over here, there's more oxygen that's going to be delivered to this arm than the other arm because there is an increase of CO2 because my metabolism is increased in this area. So, mm -hmm. so the, the idea that you just want to get rid of CO2, I think is, is quite deranged because what, what I heard from so many experts is most of us are deficient in CO2, meaning we are breathing too heavily, we are breathing too often, that we are blowing off CO2. And when we do that, you can try it with me right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> your, your fingertips are going to get a little numb, a little cold. You're going to get mm -hmm. lightheaded. Mm -hmm. That is from a decrease of circulation in those areas. So if I can, if I can extrapolate here, you're taking in this oxygen faster than you can offload or exhale the carbon dioxide. So it's sort of like the oxygen never gets to where it needs to go. Is that a fair way it's, to describe that's it? That's exactly right. And breathing in that panty heavy state is also extremely inefficient. It's so much harder to uh, participate in proper gas exchange when you're... <sighs> That's why breathing through the nose, pressurizing slower breaths will allow more gas exchange. But by breathing over our metabolic needs, just like we were doing, we'll offload more CO2. And that's why you get that constriction. It's harder to use oxygen in those states. So in our consumer culture, we consume more oxygen than we really need to. <laughs> we we the, the oxygen we use in each breath, we use about 25 to 30% of the oxygen in each breath in an average breath. So, you know, it's, this is typical consumerism, right? Why not slow down those breaths, use more oxygen, so you have to take less breaths, so you can work more efficiently. And with yes. by using less, you can actually get more oxygen. And this is something that's so completely lost. Even people in the medical community, trainers, you see people at the gym <laughs> thinking they're getting more oxygen and they're not. And uh, it's, and we've known this for 120 years, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this isn't news. Yeah. It's amazing how often things get found, discovered, forgotten about, pushed to the side. You, you've worked in, written about science for a long time. So you know how the, how that works sometimes or doesn't work. Well, I think it's just like anything else. I mean, you can look, look at food, what we know about nutrition. 120 years ago, nutritionists and doctors were saying, processed food is garbage. It's ruining the human body. It's ruining our teeth. It's ruining mm -hmm. our mouths. What did we do with that information? Zero. Food just got <laughs> more processed. But, but now, like mm -hmm. 100 years later, it, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that would argue that industrialized processed mush food is healthier than whole foods. It's just, it doesn't exist. And yet, we ate this food that we knew was wrong and certain researchers were saying that this food was better than whole foods for 
for 70, 80 years. So this is how science works. It just takes (laughs) Well, there's science and there's commerce and they don't always get along. I worked in an advertising firm in the early 80s down in Florida and we did car dealerships, supermarkets and this new field, um, hospitals. And I'm thinking, why would you want to advertise hospitals? What purpose? This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What does a hospital need with an ad campaign? Yeah, I mean, this is, if you think about it, I don't want to get too nihilistic here, but I kept no. hearing this from, from the same doctors mm-hmm. at, at the same like renowned institutions over and over and over again. They said, if our population suddenly started getting really healthy, we would be suffering from the most severe economic depression that we have ever seen in our entire lives. <laughs> Well, when a fifth of your economy is your medical expenses, that's that's not healthy <laughs> on myriad myriad levels. Yeah. He wasn't an old country doctor, but he was you know the guy down the street that had the office in his uh, in his house. And I remember getting an X-ray on the spot for a dislocated finger, making sure there was no bone splinters, and he set it right there on the spot, wrapped it up, sent me home. It was, you know, in and out, in and out in a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it was. You know how long that would take to do at Kaiser? About 14, <laughs> 14 different people. So the, the thing is, it's, it's like, this is not controversial stuff anymore uh, to mm-hmm. say this, because this is what the doctors are saying. And I, I would argue that 80, 90% of the people in the U.S. are so repulsed by our healthcare system right now for many reasons. I think the doctors are trying to do the best they can within oh, this yeah. environment. These people are busting their asses to help people. Mm-hmm. It's just we've got this system that is, that is so twisted, uh, makes zero sense. I think that's one of the reasons why this whole wellness thing um, has taken off because people have no other choice but to take care of themselves now because there's been so much BS that's been stuffed down our throats for so long. People uh, just know that preventative maintenance is the best mm-hmm. way to go. Yeah. And you're talking to the choir here because I'm officially authorized wellness. I'm integrative medicine. So that's mm-hmm. chiropractic, acupuncture, EMDR, um, heart math, uh, fascial specialties like myself. Uh, we don't have a breath. We don't have a breath therapist, but there are integrative medicine centers that do. And we have the, the university attachment, you know, just like Harvard does and Duke does and that, and that, that does bring a certain cachet and reassurance. Uh, but the consumers are coming in much more patients, people coming in much more informed, much more better informed now than they were even five years ago, which is wonderful to see. Yeah, that's why I don't view this as as a bad. It's we can look back in the past and look at all of our mistakes, but I view this as an opportunity to get things straight. Now we we know what what junk food have done to to us. Look look around, <laughs> you know. Look look in the mirror. I look in the mirror all the time, just like you know that seventies eighties food that that has just just destroyed me in so many ways. So we 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 know what what's been done, but now we have the knowledge. And now the genie's out of the bottle and it's not going to go back. We're not going to no. go back to eating high carb, high sugar, you know, a breakfast, every pop tarts every morning, thinking this is healthy, a part of a healthy breakfast. So sorry, <laughs> pop tart eaters, not healthy, not good for you. And let me tell you, pop tarts now, they're not like they were in the seventies. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but let's, uh, let's go from, let's get, 
delicious. I'll, I'll tell you that much. They're damn, they're good. But <laughs> <laughs> frosted mini wheats, man, that was that was my weakness. But but going back to childhood, um, I can remember being miserable with a cold, and I remember once shoving an M M&M and M up my nose for some reason, thinking it might help. It didn't. Uh, but you voluntarily had your nose plugged. That that terrifies me. How was how was it plugged, and how long were they in? So this was never something I intended to do first writing this. I mean, zero. I wasn't going to be any part of this book until I started talking to the chief of rhinology research down at Stanford, Jack or Nyack, big nose guy, real leading expert in the field. He was telling me all the wondrous things the nose does, our first line of defense, always breathe through the nose and all the problems associated with mouth breathing, which I had never thought of before. And I think through much of my youth and even into adulthood, I was breathing through my mouth all the time. But, but he's like, here's the science. You know, you can look on PubMed and find 400 different studies showing how deleterious to your health mouth breathing is. But nobody knew how quickly that damage came on. He had never studied it. He didn't know any studies. So we got talking over months and months. I said, well, why don't you, you're at Stanford, man. Why don't, why don't you study it? He didn't have funds allocated and all that. So we, we ended up paying for it. Me and one other person, uh, 10 days. Uh, plugs up our nose. So we were only breathing through our mouths. And then for another 10 days, we were uh, obligate nasal breathers. And I know this sounds super hardcore, super <laughs> awful, super terrible. Until you look at the stats where 25 to 50% of the population is habitually breathing through their mouths. The difference was we were just testing. We were collecting data to see what would happen. How did you get used to having your nose blocked like that? Oh, uh, you don't get used to it. Yeah, I wouldn't um, think so. No, no, it's, it was, man, the first couple hours, I was thinking, my God, how are we going to deal with this for, for 10 days? But then we kind of laughed about it. We're like, you can do anything for, for 10 days. No problem. <laughs> Until you went to sleep and you started snoring for the first time, both of us snoring, sleep apnea, blood pressure went through the roof. I mean, the, the thing that was shocking, we knew it wasn't going to be fun, but it was how sudden all of this damage just started. The minute you shut that gate, it was on. Your body was compensating. Your body was wow. struggling. It was stressed right out of the gate. Wow. So what was some of the, the data that you actually measured from this experiment? Oh, we were measuring everything. Um, we did a pulmonary function tests. We did crazy 40 different markers in blood work. We did CAT scans. Um, and a lot of things didn't change, like our faces, our noses didn't change. Beyond, I started growing a, a, a fungus in, in my nose. Um, nice. Yeah, which was, which was <laughs> wonderful. Um, but, uh, but the main thing that was happening was, was stress levels were off the charts, blood pressure off the charts, snoring and sleep apnea. I had no idea the pathway through which you breathe air can directly affect how often and how severely you snore or you choke on yourself with sleep apnea. It has such a huge influence on this. And I've never heard this from anyone. And every single snore, every single person that I know with a CPAP, which is quite a few, yeah. they have never heard this from anyone. And wow. once we experienced it, I, I remember after a couple of days, I started going from zero snoring to snoring four hours a night 
was like, what the hell is going on? And, and I did a quick review of research and the research is out there. Allergy season comes up, sleep apnea goes through the roof, mm-hmm. any obstruction in the nose, snoring. I said, why is nobody talking about this? And, and they aren't. So one of the first things when I started in the hospital study 11 years ago is I wanted to get a sleep apnea study together. There had to be mechanical issues that could be remedied through mechanical means. It didn't, I didn't get anywhere with it. Where was sleep, where was sleep apnea 30 years ago? Where did it come from? Well, people... People had had it for a long time. Dickens, the first uh, written example of sleep apnea, I think is from Pickwick Papers with, with Joe and this guy who's always sleepy and cranky. And when he falls asleep, he goes... <laughs> it, wow. it dates back that, but no one had any idea what it was until the yes. 60s Okay, uh, when they started noticing that these people were going to sleep and their blood pressure was going through the roof. So guess what they did uh-huh. for him? They gave him a tracheostomy. Oh, they sure. Poked hole, they, <laughs> they poked a hole and it and it's changed everything. No, really. I mean, uh, their, their blood pressure was in, entering like uh-huh. the 200s. Like these people were going to explode. Yeah, I've seen somebody who exploded like that. Yeah, it's not pretty. But yeah, it's not working. Cut a hole in it. But, but that was... I mean, if you think about it, we've only known about it for this long, and it's only been in the public consciousness for the last, yeah. I would think, couple decades. And if it, it shows up for the first time in Dickens, is it a product of the industrial society and the change in air quality and pollution? Could there be connection with that? Of course it is. This, this guy, Joe, was this extremely obese a uh, very heavy guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, he was eating all the, the latest uh, cakes and jarred stuff and everything. This is right when sugar was getting really cheap, when when processed flour was getting cheap, when, uh, you know, industrial food was really taking over Europe. I understand there's now something known as email apnea. So uh, I talked to Dr. Margaret Chesney, and she's been working on NIH studies for about 30 years, 40 years, looking at what happens to people's breathing in offices. And one estimate says that 80% of office workers suffer from this dysfunction in their breathing when they start getting stress, which for office workers is like, all the time <laughs> and a lot of them will hold their breath and then they'll go and they'll hold their breath and she found that the damage from doing that to your body is very similar to the damage of sleep apnea so oh. and and you're doing it all day and yeah then it's much more frequent yeah you go to sleep yeah. and you're doing it all night so related to that there is this tendency i've noticed when people are intensely concentrating to forget to breathe happens all the time. That's essentially, she called it because she's an academic continuous partial attention syndrome, you know, (laughs) but also known as email apnea or holding your breath. So Mm -hmm. I started, I was curious once I talked with her, she's at UCSF here. So I started wearing a pulse ox uh, throughout the day that would just record uh, data all day. And I noticed my breathing when I was working was so terrible, especially in the morning, you're first looking at emails, the phone's ringing, I would stop breathing for 30, 40 seconds at a time, and then breathe way too much. And my so my O2 was just like sinking, and then would go back up, just like sleep apnea. 
And you figure if you're doing that all day, every day, it's your body can compensate. It's really good at doing that, but it can never be balanced. And, no. and there's a certain point where it runs out of tricks to compensate. Yep. So would that, would that affect the acid alkaline balance that kind of spike? Yeah. In there too? Yeah. That that's what she found. Uh, you'd become really alkaline when, when you're breathing too much and when you're holding your breath, you'd become more acidic because you have more, more CO2. So having balance of uh, you want to be your pH, your body's going to keep your pH at, at a consistent 7.4. Like it's going to do what, whatever it can to keep in that zone. So, so, so whenever drinking you're drinking alkalized water to forget it, is that what you're saying? I have certain <laughs> opinions about that. I just don't see too mm. much real science be, be behind yeah. that. I just don't yeah, show I, it to me. I'll show it. I'll change my mind, you know, mm -hmm. but, but there's other Fair ways. If, if you want to balance your pH, why don't you balance your breathing? That is the most, <laughs> that is the quickest way and it's free. So it is free, almost as free as scotch tape. Now I, I did something different than what you did, but when I, so Beautiful I. Beautiful segue, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I, I work hard on those. I got the snore strips. Okay. And the other thing I was doing is I was getting acupuncture because my, my yoga teacher that I adore, uh, who's very Kundalini based, lots of Kriya work, lots of breath work. She was like, dude, you got to deal with this. Okay. It's, you know, go see an acupuncturist for your sinus issues helped tremendously. And I was looking to help it more. So I thought, let me try these snore strips and there's nothing special about them. And what I realized was it just, it's like kinesio tape. It drew attention it drew kinesthetic attention to my nose. So it was easier to breathe out of my nose than my mouth. You did something different. You actually taped your lip. Yeah, and all of these little tricks seem to work um, because you want to be breathing through your nose at night. You want to be breathing through your nose throughout the day, but, but at night as well. And so many of us, it's one thing to have conscious control during the day. Oh, I'm breathing through my mouth. I'm going to shut my mouth at night you lose that control, your muscles get relaxed and your mouth tends to just crane open. I, I slept like this for as long as I've known. That's why I always went to bed with a big water glass. It didn't matter where I was, hotel, at home, even camping, I'd have a big water jug, thinking this was normal. It's totally not normal. So I heard from Ann Kearney, the doctor of speech language pathology down at Stanford. She was prescribing to her patients a little piece of tape in the middle of the lips just to keep the jaw shut. And it sounded pretty insane to me until I saw her case studies, until I talked to Dr. Mark Berheny, who said the same exact thing. So to be clear, this is not a fat strip of duct tape, like uh, some hostage thing. Mm -hmm. This is a teeny piece of hypoallergenic micropore, very easy adhesive tape. And what it does is it, it's not designed to inhibit airflow through your mouth. It's designed to just remind you to keep your, your mm -hmm. jaw shut. And what I found is all I need is, no one else can see this, but you can. Um, all I need is a piece of tape, you She's know, got a spool. half the size of a postage stamp or just a little reminder just a little use reminder your use your nose and i can't tell you what a difference this has made in the quality of sleep and i've measured it too i've measured my oxygen levels and i've heard this from dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have had mild to moderate snoring and even sleep apnea they put a little piece of free tape on their lips 
and they no longer have these problems and they are so pissed off <laughs> dealing with this stuff for 30 years <laughs> when my wife suggested i go for a sleep apnea test it's like no way I'm, I, I'm not i'm not going to bed with like something from alien clamped to my face yeah. there's no way i will ever get a good night's sleep but you actually increase the size of your airways in your nose through a mechanical device that you you put in your upper palate yeah, and anyone can do this, and you don't need a mechanical device. I just wanted to uh, really try this out. I had talked to uh, several people. So the reason why so many of us have, have airway issues, breathing issues, because our mouths are too small for our face. And this, this is not my opinion. This is a scientific fact. You don't believe me? Look at ancient skulls. And then look at modern skulls and tell me what you find. Uh, all of our ancestors had these huge mouths, these huge airways. That's why they had perfectly straight teeth. That's mm -hmm. right. All of our ancestors, perfectly straight teeth. But um, I found that there was this device you could wear at night that could help coax the upper palate to become a little wider. But, but most importantly, what it did is it stimulated chewing stress. So by chewing, you're able to tone your airways and you're able to, to do a bunch of things. You're able to actually increase blood flow to, to the brain. You put yourself in a parasympathetic state, has all of these wonderful benefits. Mm -hmm. And yet so few of us chew nowadays. So, so, so how did it stimulate chewing stress as opposed to just, mm -hmm. I've got something jammed in my jaw? How did that? So the big difference at, as opposed to, something that like a mouth guard right if you think about when you're stressed if you've ever taken a boxing class if you're running away from something you're about to fight you clench both sides of your jaw okay mm -hmm. that is a stress response you can see this with heart rate variability you can see it with, with so many other measurements you were entering a sympathetic state okay but Imagine now that you're eating something, um, a piece of jerky. If you're vegan, you're, you're eating a carrot. You don't chew that carrot on both sides. You chew it on one side or the other. So that signals to your body to enter into that parasympathetic state. Huh. Because you want to, when you are eating, you need to be relaxed so your stomach can better digest if you've ever been extremely angry or or yes stressed out it's Get into a fight in the middle of dinner yeah suddenly it, don't work so well it, it's extremely hard to eat and, and digest so this device has this little bump on the back so every time you clench your jaw shut it's only on one side ah. so it stimulates that chewing stress and so that's the real magic of this thing. So every night, if ever I clench my jaw, which I did, I think quite often, it was oh, yeah. just a little little chewing stress, chewing stress wow. over and over and yeah, what's over. What's this device called? Uh, there are two devices. One of, is called a homeoblock. That one helps to expand the palate a little bit. Mm -hmm. But there's another device that's much simpler and much easier to use called the pod Okay. And advanced facial donics is the ones uh, they have the trademark on this thing. Um, and it, it goes on the lower jaw and it just has that little bump in the back. Those guys have done their work. It's FDA approved, all that stuff. And the proof's in the pudding for me. I mean, I took a CAT scan 
um, right when I started using it in a CAT scan exactly a year after and showed such tremendous changes in my airway and and even I built bone in my face, which is supposed to be impossible, but not necessarily. The, if you look at the cellular mechanisms responsible for for building and maintaining bone, building and maintaining connective tissue, they they are stress based. They take in mechanical information and respond to that mechanical information. If you change the input, you can modulate the signal. So to me, that's not far out at all. But you, you talked to, I completely agree with you. I saw that in my own body and I learned this. But if you look at any chart or, or you look at a medical textbook, they say we only lose bone after the age of 30 and women, women suffer the, the worst. But you're 100% right. Osteoblastogenesis is a fancy name for it. So with the right inputs, you can start remodeling things and, and you can especially impact your, the bones in your face, which is, which is bizarre. That, that's the place I'd ever really honestly thought about in the somatic world. There is a, a process called structural integration. There's a number of different brand names, but it, it all has this biomechanical way of looking at to reorganize, realign the body in a way that lasts. And they actually, it's one of the few that does both interoral and internasal procedures. Now there are PTs who'll put a balloon up the nose and you know and do that, but this is something very, very, very different. With a skilled person, I wouldn't say it's pleasant, but it isn't nearly as horrible as it it might sound to some people. And sometimes there's some very good physiological reasons to do it. But I remember one time working with a student in a class who I really trusted to you know, go there and be sensitive. And it just was like something was stuck. And she's like, do you have a deviated septum? I'm like, no, not that I know. And then it was just like schnick. It's like a key going in a lock. And suddenly it was like my nose sucked her pinky further down into it, into the nasal passage. And I went through about a half a box of Kleenex because it was almost like I was like very gradually coughing up hairballs. You know, it wasn't, and it's just like, whatever this is, I, I don't want it in me anymore. Let it go. And my God, the change in my breathing, my glasses weren't crooked. They would always sit on my, my sunglasses that always sit a little crooked. I have no idea what that was that extruded itself. <laughs> That's nuts. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. But while we're talking about bone change, because uh, I work with people with scoliosis, uh, Katharina Schroth was a fascinating story. Um, could we just have a whole chapter on her? Yeah, she was a teenager who was diagnosed with scoliosis. And she was told that there's, you have one option, that you wear this brace, you know, this is, this is your life. But she realized that how we breathe affects our posture and our posture also affects how we breathe. So she started doing something called orthopedic breathing, where she would bend, basically yoga poses, bend into one position, breathe into one side, bend into the other, breathe into the other. Um, and she straightened her spine this way. This was not easy. She was German. So, you know, the Germans don't, don't mind a little pain and discipline. No, and precision engineering. So they, they thought that she was a freak until she went and started training hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women to do the same thing. And there's x-rays of it. And, you know, she, she suffered from uh, all of the lambasting from the medical community, repeatedly tried to shut her down for decades and decades. And then at the end of her life, she lived to be 91. 
they awarded her with a medal for her contributions to medicine. So sometimes as, as they should have, but you're, you're putting the body in a particular position, but then using the breathing, you're also varying the internal pressure and that stimulates the mechanical response. So if you're doing it in the right way, it takes years in the case of a scoliosis, but it can, it doesn't, it, that makes perfect sense to me that under the right guidance, it can be done. For sure. And she showed it. I mean, people were having huge changes within just a few weeks. She was claiming uh, they were growing a few inches in height because they had been so hunched over. They were able to breathe better. I mean, it was it's it's pretty stunning. What was even more stunning to me is this is considered this very weirdo outlier therapy, but it's never been disproven. It works. There's still two schools. I think Johns Hopkins still uses it. Hmm. Uh, but it seems like it's just sort of been forgotten about, you know, like like with so much else with with breathing and the benefits of breathing. Yeah. Well, I, I what I hope is, is we're going to go back more to that more individualized model because you can't you can't industrial replicate a therapy like that. I have two hands, but I can't work on two people simultaneously. You know, unlike, okay, we need you to see X number of patients an hour because we need to, you know, the spreadsheet medicine model. But moving away from that, going from the the more physical to the more mystical, uh, and I always say his name wrong, so I'm going to ask you to say it. It's the one with the G-Y-O-R-G-I. Uh, Georgi. That's how I've been saying it. Yeah. Zent, Zent Georgi, because you did some investigations to find out what is prana. And because if we measure it, we can study it. So what is prana, James Nestor? That's a great question. It's an, an evolving area of research, but I wanted to find what, what breathing was right down to its core. What, what really happens within our bodies at the subatomic level? And the best explanation for prana that I was able to find was that it's just working like electrons. And Albert Svent Georgi won a Nobel Prize for his work in vitamin C, but also became this, this real lion of, of cancer research. And what he found, he's just like, the way that cancer is being researched, we are never going to find the cure because it's an, it's an environmental problem. People mm-hmm. are trying to pinpoint one specific thing. If that were the case, why for the last 30 years when everyone's like, oh, we got a cure for cancer, here it is. You're just going to take the shot and we've isolated this one hormone and this is, all of those have failed miserably. So he was looking at this on a much deeper level and he was trying to understand how life used air for energy. And at the very core of that was mm. what he called uh, desaturation of electrons. When electrons are able to freely intermingle with other structures and be desaturated, then that's where life could really proliferate. So that was his explanation for it. And oxygen was this wonderful catalyst to allow electrons to be exchanged between molecules, between atoms. What I found that was so interesting is this is essentially what prana has been described as for thousands of years. <laughs> they called it prana. Mm-hmm. We call it electrons, but it's the same thing. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> Where's my it's, follow-up it's question? Where's so my follow-up question? complicated. I had to spend <laughs> on that, on those uh-huh. two pages where I talk about this, 
took me about three months working with chemists and biochemists mm -hmm. and because it's so saturated uh, or, or complicated and yet it's so basic at its core that the more something is going to be able, the more energy is going to be freely able to move around, the more something is going to be able to, to stay in a state of growth and life. The second that energy stops is the second things start to die. There's a French physio who noticed women who were diagnosed with unilateral, women that were diagnosed with unilateral breast cancer, they would immediately stop moving the arm on the side of the diagnosis to a person. And it was nothing that they were consciously doing, but it was that desire to kind of draw in and protect. How, how did you find the more mystical aspects of your excursion into breathwork. I remember reading the books on holotropic breathwork, never actually did it. It just seemed sort of like controlled hyperventilation to me. And I was never in a controlled environment where I felt like, okay, I'm safe to do this. Now you tried that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And one thing I wanted to not focus too much on in the book is my own personal experience, what was happening in my brain. That's interesting for some story elements here and there. But to me, if this book and the information wasn't speaking to the reader and what was happening in their body and what they could experience and what was measurable and what could be studied, then it starts reading like, like a memoir, you know? Yeah, then you get into Carlos Castaneda territory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's great at what he does, you know? Yeah. But that, I wanted to have a really mm -hmm. objective book that could tell people about themselves, not, not me, you know, going on and on about, and then I saw this creature and then I saw that mm -hmm. that's not my, not my interest, yeah. but nonetheless, things do get weird in those holotropic workshops. Um, you know, and it's, it's massive. It's, it's uncontrolled hyperventilation. <laughs> There's nothing controlled about it at all. And so to be clear, this mm -hmm. stuff works. And mm -hmm. we know from, from studies, uh, Jimmy Ironman uh, used it for 11,000 people in St. Louis and followed 423 of them through case studies. And this did what nothing else can do. We know it works. We still don't know how the hell it works. Um, but it's three hours of intensive, mm -hmm. uncontrolled hyperventilation. And yeah, your mind goes to some pretty wild places. Without Imagine so. So at the end of the day, and in you were you've been quite clear in both in your book and in our conversation today that that this exploration has changed your body and it's changed your life and for the better. So what do you do to maintain? Well, I had never intended to to start adopting these these breathing practices because, again, I wanted to stay outside of the science and outside of the story. I wanted to focus on the people who were doing them. I wanted to focus on the people who were inventing them and who were studying them. But you start seeing people so massively transformed by this thing called breath, and you want to start applying that to your life as well. I live in the middle of the city. I have a pretty stressful schedule, sometimes a, a very stressful job. So... I noticed that the simplest things tend to have the biggest effect. And they're so simple, they seem quaint. They seem like they <laughs> wouldn't work until you look at the science, right? Uh -huh. So breathe through your nose all the time. And if your nose is, is plugged up, if you haven't been able to breathe through it for years, you have to find a way of 
fixing that. Some people need surgical interventions. I've found that the vast majority of people do not. What they need <laughs> is what you did to some acknowledgement, some recognition, some acupuncture works, breathe right strips work. Um, inhaling uh, eucalyptus oil is a good one. Put that mm -hmm. on your on your upper lip. But most vapor rub, people, the power of vapor rub. Vapor rub is great. <laughs> But most people just need to use their nose more um, mm -hmm. and understand that so much of our health is dictated by nasal breathing. So that's the first one. The other one is breathe slowly and breathe less. And those seem uh, counterintuitive. You figure you're going to be breathing less, you're getting less oxygen. All you need is one of these things. It's called a pulse oximeter. It costs about 20 bucks on Amazon. And mm -hmm. uh, you will be surprised how little you need to breathe to keep your blood sats up at that consistent, even to, to crank them up a little higher than they usually are. So many of us, I would say most of us are breathing way too much and we're causing our bodies to constantly have to compensate for that, which as we mentioned, is gonna wear them down. So just those, those two or three things can have such a huge impact on, on your health, on your sleep, on your mental well-being. And again, the science is, is very clear about all this stuff. Well, James, thanks for spending some time with me today. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not have a copy of James Nestor's breath book, um, you need to go out and get it now. MrJamesNestor.com is his website, and he's got even more uh, links to the science about this, uh, x-rays, photographs, all kinds of phenomenal, phenomenal detail. It will inspire you. James, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. This is David Lasondak. Thank you for listening to Body Talk. If you enjoyed what you heard, please hit the subscribe button. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the show, go to patreon.com slash bodytalkradio. This is David Lasondak saying, remember, it's all connected. See you next week.